You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 117, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Deeper Secrets of Human Evolution in the Light of the Gospels, translated by Christiana Bryan. This is Lecture 4, given in Berlin on the 9th of November, 1909, entitled The Mission of the Ancient Hebrew People. In the last lecture, we discussed how we would structure our studies of the Gospels and the reasons were given for our intention to set forth some aspects of St. Matthew's Gospel. In some respects, this is to describe the most human elements of Christ Jesus that we encounter in this Gospel. On the other hand, we are given a comprehensive overview of the historical events that show how Christ Jesus emerges out of humanity itself. As this Gospel reveals to us, how the greatest event of earthly evolution has emerged out of history, we can reasonably guess that the deeper secrets of human advance lie precisely in this gospel. Today I will again expressly emphasize that what is said on this occasion is sensitive and that it is easy to do serious harm to our spiritual scientific movement by one-sidedly sharing these mysteries with all and sundry. The greatest, most grateful tact needs to be exercised in relation to this. It is not too much to expect each one of you to find it within your forbearance only to speak of any Christ picture once you are in possession of all four aspects as characterized in the four Gospels. From our study of St. Luke's Gospel, we could see how the two great pre-Christian streams of Zarathustrianism and that which reached its pre-Christian zenith in Buddhism flowed together, pouring themselves out into that great Christian stream of spiritual life on earth. The Gospel of St. Matthew initially speaks of something quite different, namely to show how the physicality into which the individuality of Zarathustra incarnated emerged from out of the ancient Hebrew people. It sets itself the task of showing the part played by the ancient Hebrew people in the universal evolution of humanity. One might imagine when the individuality of Zarathustra had incarnated in the Jesus of Bethlehem that only the physical essence was born out of the Hebrew folk and that nothing more is being asserted than that Zarathustra is reincarnated into a Hebrew physical body. Were one to give this assertion even a nuanced credence, it would result in a false understanding of the truth. Observations such as this make it clear that an individuality such as Zoroaster Zarathustra needs physical embodiment as an instrument. If an individuality descends from the highest heights, from the most divine of spiritual worlds, and is incarnated into unsuitable embodiment, then nothing more than that body's inherent potential as an instrument can be created by the incarnating being. 
false nuances of feeling, as mentioned earlier, can give rise to manifold misunderstandings. In the theosophical movement, it was long not understood that the human body is the temple of the human soul. We need to take into account what has so often been emphasized here, that the human eye, capital, dwells within three sheaths, each of which is older than the human eye itself. This eye is an earth entity, the youngest of the three components. The astral body has its origins on the ancient moon, the ethereal, etheric, or life body originates on old sun, which is three planetary cycles ago. The physical body is in its own way the most complete component, and has four planetary ages behind its evolution. The physical body has been fashioned over eons of time, so that it is now the most perfected instrument available to the human ego, enabling it in its task of eventually raising itself back to spiritual heights. Were the physical body to be as incomplete as the astral body and the eye, human development on earth would not be tenable. If you take this seriously, you will no longer entertain any falsely nuanced association with the concept that Zarathustra was born out of the Hebrew people. This people was necessarily constituted as it was so that it was able to offer the physical basis for a being such as Zarathustra. If we imagine that this being has, since his time as the teacher of a proto-Persian people, been developing ever higher, we must also say that it was essential to provide a bodily instrument of a quality commensurate with this being's lofty stature. A fitting instrument had to be available to him. Throughout the evolutions of Saturn, Sun, Moon, and Earth, the gods have been at pains to shape and configure the universal human form. From this we may draw the inference that the more intimate and individual the preparations for a human body, the more extra spiritual divine work is entailed in furnishing a body with the exceptional qualities then needed to serve Zarathustra. In order for this to come about, the entire history of the ancient Hebrew peoples had to take the course that it took. The Akashic Chronicle shows us that the contents of the Old Testament do in fact coincide with historical records. Everything within the ancient Hebrew folk had, as it were, to be configured in such a way as to find its zenith in the individuality of the Bethlehem Jesus. Exceptional processes had to be invoked. Forces most capable of being developed by humanity, necessarily developed, had to be extracted from the sum total of post-Atlantean culture so that humanity could replace their ancient clairvoyant faculties with them. The ancient Hebrew peoples were destined to offer just such a physicality, structured into the very fabric of the brain, so as to enable what we call worldly knowledge to be established without clairvoyant influence. Such was to be the mission of this nation. Abraham, the progenitor of this people, was just such an individual whose physicality was chosen as a fitting instrument for reasoned thinking. 
everything previously of great significance and stature, had been framed by the after-effects of ancient clairvoyance. But now an individuality, with the best-suited brain, was called to observe matters with reasoned thinking and without being harried or compelled by clairvoyant imaginations and intuitions. An exceptionally configured brain was essential in supporting an individual destined as was Abram or Abraham. The following also corresponds with the Akashic record, namely the direction from which Abraham came, westward from beyond the Euphrates toward Canaan. Abraham was summoned, as we are told in the Bible, from Ur in Chaldea. Whilst the after-echoes of a dimming clairvoyance still lingered in Egyptian and Chaldean Babylonian cultures, an individual from the Chaldean people was selected, who was no longer reliant on such visionary capacities, but who based his observations on events in the outer world. A culture was to be introduced whose fruits are still embodied in our Western civilization. Synthetic thinking and mathematical logic were introduced by Abraham, and right into medieval times he was regarded in a certain sense as the initiator of arithmetic. The entire configuration of his thinking was such that it saw the world in terms of relative measure and number. A personality constituted in this way was predisposed to a living relationship with such a Godhead as would manifest through the medium of the outer world. Other gods, with the exception of Yahweh, appeared in the inner recesses of the soul and imagination, intuition, and related faculties had to be developed in order to gain understanding of them. In ancient India, one could gaze out and see the sun rising, see the kingdoms of earth, the processes in the airy regions, those of the sea, and so on. Yet all this was regarded as a great illusion, as Maya, in which the Indian could have seen no trace of the divine once he had attained to this through inner imagination, had he not afterwards sought to bring this into relationship with the outer world. Just as for Zarathustra too, we should be aware that he would not have been able to reveal the great being of the sun had not Ahura Mazda also arisen within him. But we see this particularly in the Egyptian gods, who originate deep within soul experience and are subsequently brought into relation with outer phenomena. This is the standpoint from which all pre-Hebrew divinities are to be regarded. Yahweh or Jehovah, however, is the one God who observes us externally, who approaches humankind from the outside, revealing himself in wind and weather. Inasmuch as human beings penetrate everything present in the world by way of measure, number and weight, to this extent do they move closer to the God Yahweh. In earlier ages, this was the reverse. Brahma was initially recognized within the soul and from thence brought outward into the world. Yahweh, conversely, is first encountered externally and can only be verified by subsequent inner experience. This is the spiritual counter-image of what we can call the union of Yahweh with Abraham, 
Here was a man whose personality could grasp and understand Yahweh or Jehovah, a man whose physical constitution was such that the deity pervading, enlivening, and weaving throughout world phenomena could comprehend it. Through the unique attributes of this man, Abraham, we are now concerned with deducing the mission of an entire people. It was essential that Abraham's spiritual entelechy be transferred to others, something dependent on physical means, for every impulse that needs to be brought to outer expression is reliant on a quite specific configuration of the physical body. The ancient religions, built as they were on a basis of dimming clairvoyance, did not need to rely so heavily on whether individual components of a brain were formed in this way or that. Comprehension of Jehovah, however, was strongly bound to the physical configuration of the brain. Only via the route of heredity within a people connected by blood-relatedness could such characteristics be transferred. Something quite special had to take place. Abraham needed descendants who passed on that unique physical constitution which previously the gods themselves had formed and which found its culminating pinnacle in Abraham. The shaping of physical bodies now had to be undertaken over many generations, independently of human ken, so as to continue the formative work, hitherto the charge of the gods. A brain capable of comprehending Jehovah had to be arrived at through physical heredity, and the union of Jehovah with Abraham transmitted onward into descendants. An extraordinary devotion to Jehovah was entailed in this process, an exceptional devotedness on the part of Abraham as an individuality, because the potential for progressively developing a particular constitution is dependent on the extent to which it is used as intended. If one wants to make a hand skilled for a particular purpose, for instance, this can only be successful to the extent that the hand is cultivated in accordance with its intended design or purpose. In order to foster the physical basis for a Jehovah-compatible brain, devotedness in addition to Jehovah comprehension had to be present in the highest imaginable degree. This was in fact the case. We are told in the Bible how it took place. Devotion is at its greatest when one sacrifices what one is oneself to become in future. Abraham is to sacrifice his son Isaac to Yahweh Jehovah. In doing this, he would have sacrificed the entire future of the Hebrew people, everything that he was and everything with which he was tasked with bringing about worldwide. Abraham was the first to comprehend Jehovah. To show his complete surrender to this task, he had to devote himself utterly to its demands. In sacrificing his only descendant, he renounces all future propagation of his line throughout the world. His devoted renunciation went as far as sacrificing Isaac. It was his will so to do. Isaac is then returned to him. What does this mean? It means something quite awe-inspiring. Isaac is returned to him by Jehovah himself. 
In other words, Abraham carries out the mission with which his individuality is tasked to the extent that he is willing to devolve his mission to posterity, not on his own account, but on his son's, as a gift from Yahweh Jehovah. If you think about it, you will see here a fact of world significance, illuminating to a boundless extent the secrets of humanity's historical evolution. Let us see how events proceed. Through his dedicated surrender to Jehovah, it becomes possible for all that the gods had hitherto created to really endure over time. Physical humankind was born out of cosmic existence. What we know as physical embodiment on earth is interwoven as number, measure, and weight, with laws over which the realm of stars holds sway. Humanity is born from out of the starry worlds and bears within it the laws of the starry heavens. These laws of the stellar heavens had, as it were, to be inscribed into the blood flowing onward through the generations of ancient Hebrew peoples, originating in Abraham. Everything within the old Hebrew peoples had to be regulated in such a way as to allow the onward flow of lawfulness, as expressed in number, measure, and weight, and as it had formed human physicality, from out of cosmic unity and in the form of laws pertaining in stellar realms. We see this expressed in a severely distorted passage in the Bible where it is stated that God wished to make the Israelites as numerous as the stars in the heavens. What is in fact meant is that in the way they reproduced and dispersed across the earth, down the ages, God intended the laws and numerical ratios to hold sway that also pertain in the stars on high. The Hebrew people was to be aligned in the stream of its hereditary transmission in accordance with the numerical harmony of the stars. We see how this takes place. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. We see how, in all that flows via the blood of generations, those belonging to the line of Esau are set aside, discontinued and a more fitting bloodline is brought to the fore and further modified. Jacob had twelve sons, corresponding with the twelve divisions of the zodiac through which the sun passes on high, enacting the ordering of each constellation in turn. This has an inner lawfulness, an inner principle. In the lies and processes of heredity, visible in the Hebrew peoples, a reflection of the number and measure reigning in the heavens, can indeed be discerned. Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac, fully rededicating himself to his mission from Jehovah. A ram or a lamb was sacrificed in place of Isaac. What does this signify? Something of extraordinary depth is concealed here. The human physicality, destined to reproduce and embody capacities capable of grasping measure and number in the world, were, in accordance with mathematical logic, to be preserved and received as a gift from Jehovah. To maintain this capability in unalloyed form, however, it was essential to eliminate all forms of dim, atavistic clairvoyance, to renounce all manner of imaginations, intuitions, and the influx of all such revelations, as persisted in other archaic religions well into Chaldean and Egyptian times. All bequests from the spiritual world 
had to be rejected. The last such spiritual gift that remained when all others had become obscure is denoted in the mystical symbolism of the ram. The two horns of the ram denote the renunciation of the two-petaled lotus flower, the last of the gifts of clairvoyance to be sacrificed after all such aptitudes had long since been discarded. To achieve the physicality required in Isaac, the final clairvoyant capacity, the gift of the ram, had to be renounced. The people continued to live out their mission in such a way that precisely such faculties as Abraham possessed were inheritable down the generations. When any clairvoyance resurfaces atavistically, whenever one or another is able to see into the spiritual world, a reaction sets in that rejects the personality concerned. They are cast out and not tolerated within their community. Hostility toward this gift of the ram is expressed in enmity, as exemplified by Joseph. His dreams were prophecies illumined by the spiritual world. He is therefore quite naturally outlawed, banished for having the very gift that is to be eradicated from the mission of the Hebrew people. He is shunned by his brethren for having inherited a resurgent aspect of ancient clairvoyance. This is why Joseph is exiled to Egypt. He has deviated from the mission of his people. What we are told is very significant. Now we see why the personality representing all that the Hebrew people could only look back upon as something existing before Abraham, how what exists in the personality of Joseph is related to illustrate by exception the characteristics so essential to the fulfillment of the ancient Hebrew people's evolutionary mission. The door had been closed to the world that had, through latent clairvoyance, led to the religions of India and Persia. The portal had been sealed. Now people looked via measure and number to Jehovah, to the one entity who could rightly order the world. The only known certainty was that everything externally visible, everything manifest in the world, was an emanation of Jehovah Yahweh, the world creator, and was one and the same as the human I, capital, was synonymous with human egohood. Yet no imaginations, no individual inner experiences of this fact surfaced within these native communities. In those times, I must emphasize this, no individual experience of this fact could occur. It had to be learned through outer experience. In other words, this had to be learned amongst a people who could still experience such things. Joseph thus became the binding link between the ancient Hebrews and the Egyptians, with a people, in other words, from whom knowledge could be gained of experiences no longer accessible to Hebrews. Whatever can be synthesized by means of one's own inner experience, knowledge and experience of the external world with those of inner imagination, could then only be absorbed by aligning oneself with a people still experiencing this to a high degree, a people such as the Egyptians. Inner capacities such as these 
had to be harmonized with those of mathematical logic. Only someone still possessing something of this imaginative quality could introduce logic to the Egyptians, and Joseph, having this ability, was the most apt link. He could serve the Egyptians in that he had two gifts, the old clairvoyance from the time of Abraham, which could access the realm of Egyptian striving, as well as what they lacked by way of mathematical logic, being unable to implement in physical life what their imagination revealed. Pharaoh was incapable of ordering matters as this new, previously absent faculty dawned. Imagination was plentiful, but when a certain level of disorder set in, the additional faculty of thinking in terms of number and measure was lacking in the Egyptians, yet present in Joseph. He was in a position to give sage and timely advice at the Egyptian court and was the most fitting connection between Hebrews and Egyptians. In this way he could bring it about that the Yahweh-Jehovah teachings, which had hitherto been a synthesis of external reality, like a mathematical world concept, now gained the color and imaginative content abundant in Egypt. It was Moses who made the harmonious correlation between ancient Egyptian experience and knowledge of world conditions and contexts. Once made, the Hebrews could be led back to process in their own ways what they had experienced, or rather had undergone, in Egypt. It is a matter of the following, that a gift remained unalloyed by other peoples, and that an idiosyncratic blood configuration remained unadulterated. On the other hand, whatever ancient peoples had achieved had to be salvaged. What has been handed down from ancient times is the wisdom alive in the Egyptians that has been inculcated, incarnated, and literally embodied by Moses into the old Hebrew peoples with their predisposition to mathematical logical faculties. Then again, the Hebrew people had to be torn away in readiness for inheriting what could only be transferred through Abraham's people. And so they lived on, in ever refining essential preconditions and aligning their blood ever more closely with these preconditions. The time came when it became possible, in accordance with the lines of heredity down the generations, to realize the physical vessel for the Jesus child and make it suitable for the personality of Zoroaster Zarathustra to inhabit it. To this end, the people had to be made powerfully robust. If in the sense of the Matthew Gospel we trace the times of the kings and judges and the various destinies of the ancient Hebrew peoples, we will see how the conditions and relationships revealed by this people often stray and yet were essential in bringing about what had necessarily to be brought about. It was especially important that this people underwent the misfortune expressed as the Babylonian imprisonment. We will see how their unique folk characteristics developed and how, after encountering the ancient traditions present in Babylon from an opposing perspective, they were then ready to be reunited with all that they had left behind. That is one thing. The other is that just when the Hebrew people were led into a confluence with the Babylonians 
a great and mighty teacher from the East was teaching there, and that some of the most outstanding among the Hebrews had the opportunity to live in the light of this great teacher. This is the time when Zarathustra was teaching as Nazarathos or Zeratos in the very region to which the Jews had been led. Some of the greatest prophets came under his influence and he was able to achieve much, as much, in fact, as was required at the point when the people's blood configuration had already been to a certain degree effective, yet now needed specific external influences. One cannot go far wrong if one compares this entire evolution with the gradual and incremental development of an individual. A child is born and grows up to its seventh year in the physical care of its parents. Influences on a physical level predominate here, followed by those enabling the etheric body to be born in a timely way. This stage focuses primarily on shaping memory to the end that everything developing in the ether body can be properly strengthened. A third period can be characterized as the astral body beginning to connect with the external world and absorbing what we can term the necessary powers of judgment or the ability to discriminate. The ancient Hebrew people experienced this journey in a unique way. They underwent the first period during the time between Abraham and the first kings, and this can be compared with the first seven years of an individual childhood. Everything is done to consolidate the unique characteristics of blood. Everything we are told about Abraham's travels, of the elaboration of the twelve tribes, how the laws of Moses were incorporated, about the tribulations in the desert, can be compared with all that streams into the individual from their physical surroundings. The second phase that follows cements their inner life and is characterized by the dominion of the kings until their captivity in Babylon. After this, the influences of Chaldea and those of the Oriental Magi become active upon the Hebrew people. The spiritual leader, who lived between 600 and 550 BCE, and who was already allowing this Eastern content to flow into the Hebrew peoples, was none other than the individual we know as Zarathustra. Even then he was working toward the preparation of a suitable physical vessel, through increasing potential and creating ever more suitable conditions for a fitting physical body to evolve through the generations from Abraham onward. All this ultimately enabled Zarathustra to reincarnate within this stream. St. Matthew portrays this progression in an especially wonderful and truthful way, introducing a threefold element. There are three times fourteen generational elements, fourteen from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the Babylonian captivity, and again fourteen from Babylon until Christ Jesus. Here are three times fourteen, forty-two generations, that reveal how the physical embodiment of Jesus contained the essence of the combined destinies of the ancient Hebrew peoples from Abraham downward. Now a human being arises who brings to expression all those qualities garnered down the generations through lines of heredity, who expresses spiritually 
the workings of his soul by synthesizing them all within his single human personality. Hebraic evolution in its entirety since Abraham was to be gathered up into this one individuality and find its zenith in the Jesus described in St. Matthew's Gospel. How could this come about? This is only possible by recapitulating all preceding evolution at a soul level. Zarathustra sets out from the region of Ur in Chaldea, whence Abraham originates, emanating spiritually from the mysteries. This is where the golden star first appears and proceeds on its course with the local magi following it. The same takes place on a spiritual plane as took place physically through Abraham. The path Abraham took is taken spiritually by the star followed by the Magi. This is, in fact, the incarnating Zarathustra himself, treading the path Abraham took and descending to his birthplace. This is the moment when the individuality of Zarathustra incarnates in the Jesus child of Bethlehem and which is known to the Magi. They follow the star that is their great teacher, Zarathustra, who is incarnating. We are now faced with the fact that this trail actually continued, that contained within the personality of that Jesus child, the entire evolution of the Hebrew people is encompassed. Readers aside, sorry that sentence just doesn't quite make sense, end of readers aside. We see firstly that on a spiritual level the sacrifice of Isaac is reenacted. In spirit this is repeated through the sacrificial gifts of the three magi from the east. Gold, frankincense and myrrh are their offerings. We also see that again something appears that reminds us of the earlier events of the ancient Hebrew people. Connected with the birth of this Jesus child is an image of the destinies of the ancient Hebrews. A certain Joseph, with his heritage of dreaming, is the connecting link between the Hebrew and Egyptian peoples. Here again is a Joseph given to dreaming, and his dreams tell him not only that Jesus is to be born, but also that he must flee to Egypt with the child. Now Zarathustra's path leads onward and into the body of the Jesus child. Just as he had followed the path, traveled in the physical world by Abraham, from Ur in Chaldea to Canaan, now he continues on his way to Egypt. Likewise, the Jesus child is brought back from Egypt, just as the Hebrews had been led back. Thus we see in the appearance of Jesus of Bethlehem, only later called Jesus of Nazareth, a recapitulation of the folk destiny of the ancient Hebrew people right up to their homecoming out of Egypt into the promised land of Palestine. The external history of the Hebrew people that had played out over many long centuries is now reprised in the destiny of that human individuality representing Zarathustra in the body of the Bethlehem Jesus. Taken as a whole, this is the secret of humanity's entire history as related in the Matthew Gospel. One does not understand human history at all if one does not take account of the fact that in the individual destinies of great leading individuals, each of whom have their unique mission, 
human evolution over centuries is repeated, that they incorporate in one incarnation the essence of all that has been developing in humankind over many long centuries. Christ Jesus had, naturally, to encompass far more than this, but his physical embodiment had to be prepared for, and this could only take place in the extraordinary ways described. How do matters now stand regarding the short time in which a recapitulation of the entire Hebrew people is to take place within the personality of Jesus? What characterizes this time in history? Let us gather together the various evolutionary facts I have sought to align for your imaginations. Combining these we see, humanity proceeded from out of a primeval state in which what bound people together in love were the ties of blood. Those drawn together by blood loved one another, and marriage took place within closely related family groupings. There was no bond of love other than this in ancient times, and because of this, love was bound to blood relations. These closely related marriages formed the basis for life in ancient times. But then these close ties were increasingly loosened in the most varied regions of the earth. And we can trace how it was seen as exceptional when men and women of different hereditary or tribal lines intermarried, when marriage was widened after such initial closeness. All the myths, sagas, and legends, such as For instance, the Song of Gudrun characterized this as unusual, impressive, and worthy of remark. In this realm of human development, two streams are active, one a divine spiritual principle whose active aim it had always been to lead humanity as a single entity unified through blood-relatedness. Opposing this was another, a Luciferic principle, which aimed to make individuals self-reliant, each as great and powerful as possible. Both principles have to be active within human nature, and both are essential to human evolution. Now both these powers were working in the course of humanity's progress, divine spiritual powers and those retarded luciferic powers remaining behind on the moon, who wished to prevent humankind from losing the identity that would make them completely independent. These two forces have always been active within human evolution. These powers have caused the human eye or ego, which is a product of earth, to be forever wrenched to and fro. On the one hand, humanity was inspired to general human love, on the other toward inner self-reliance. At a certain point, something of a crisis was reached, in relation to the divergent activity of these two forces. This human crisis, this decision, took place when, as a result of the deeds of the Roman Empire, a large swath of earthly humanity was thrown together. This was indeed a decisive moment in human evolution, a moment when the hitherto unresolved issue of close or wider intermarriage was to be determined. Human beings stood in danger of losing their eye identities through remaining within the single tribe marriage context or instead losing all connection with humanity at large and becoming isolated, self-reliant and egotistic individuals. This was a pivotal moment. 
what needed to happen at this moment, something quite particular. The human eye first had to become sufficiently mature to develop what we can call independence and freedom, and of itself and in freedom to unfold a soul-spiritual love that could exist independently of blood ties. The human ego was at a watershed. It had to become completely unfettered and self-aware. This was the situation faced in the ancient world by most people on earth, with the exception of those in the Orient. The necessity to bring about a new birth of their eye, a new birth through which each eye, born of itself, could attain to the love it had itself engendered. Such an eye was to develop love on the basis of freedom, and freedom out of love. Fundamentally, only when a person becomes a true human being do they attain to this. A true human being is indeed one who has achieved this birth of their eye. This is because those who love solely on the basis of blood ties are compelled to love and merely express on a higher level what also exists at a lower level in the animal kingdom. Only at the point we have just described did real potential for human development present itself. This was the stage at which the influence enabling humans to attain true humanity spread across the world, making of people veritable humans. Remember, if you will, what I have told you countless times, that the individual, by virtue of his very being, consists of three members, a physical body in common with minerals, an etheric or ethereal body in common with plants, and an astral body hitherto also the seat of a love experienced in common with animals. Through fully developing their eye or ego, human beings have become the crown of earthly creation. The rest of creation have names externally bestowed on them and are in this sense objects. The eye has a name that it can only bestow upon itself. Divinity speaks in the eye. Terrestrial conditions no longer pertain in the ego. Only the spirit realm speaks in the human ego. Spirit speaks from out of the heavens once such an ego or I has fully realized itself. One could say that previously three kingdoms existed, mineral, plant and animal, and that another realm can be added, which had, albeit raised itself above that of the animal, but had not yet attained completion which had not yet received into itself a celestial element. This is the realm which contains all that does not exist in earthly realms, contains all that can be gathered up within an eye, and was once called in the tradition of biblical parlance the kingdom or kingdoms of heaven, and frequently rendered as the kingdom of God. This heavenly realm is none other than a paraphrase of the term the realm of humanity. When referring to mineral plant or animal kingdoms, we could, in the sense of the Bible, add as a fourth domain the kingdom of heaven. The human realm is, in reality, in the sense of the Bible, a heavenly realm. Those who once gazed via the mysteries into the entire course of human evolution could have said the following, Look back into olden times, 
to the time when humanity was becoming human, and you will see that the kingdom of heaven did not yet exist on earth. Now the time has come when the kingdom of heaven is to appear on earth. This is what the forerunner of Christ Jesus proclaimed and what Christ Jesus himself declared. Quote, the kingdom of heaven is nigh. Close quote. In this they were characterizing their times in the very deepest sense. And it was precisely then that the birth of Christ Jesus had to take place. He was to bring to earth those very forces by means of which the human eye would be able to gain the qualities described. The entire evolution of humankind can thus be divided into two parts, a pre-Christian age in which the kingdom of heaven did not yet exist on earth and an age in which the kingdom of heaven was then to be found on earth in the human kingdom in its highest sense. The ancient Hebrew people were chosen to provide the physical corporeality, the physical sheaths, which had been in preparation as an entity to receive the bearer of the kingdom of heaven. These are the secrets that reveal themselves when one focuses on historical questions in the context of St. Matthew's Gospel. We can add to the two streams contributing to Christianity and characterized earlier, Zarathustrianism and Buddhism, a third stream, the Hebrew stream, the contribution of the ancient Hebrew peoples. We can now say there used to be leaders such as Buddha and Zarathustra who wanted to bring the offering of their religious streams. For this a temple needed to be raised and it could only be built by the ancient Hebrew people. These were the people who built the bodily temple of Jesus, and this was the temple into which those two tributary streams could flow. Zarathustra was the first to sacrifice himself by incarnating into this prepared body. The Buddha then made the sacrifice of allowing his own Nirmanakaya to flow into the other Jesus, In this way, these two streams found their confluence. In giving you some additional thoughts today, which are by way of being somewhat conclusive in nature, I have only been able to provide fleeting sketches of these deep mysteries. Just to convey such conclusive lines of thought, I have been obliged to characterize them rather schematically. Later, we will continue to explore the mission of the ancient Hebrew people, and the unique emergence of the Christ Jesus from this people, we will encounter the inimitable as it emerges from history, from the temporal course of evolution, and encounter a being of eternal consequence, a being having significance of eternal duration. The advent will gradually reveal itself, emerging from a transitory ephemeral world of that which will endure forever. The end of Lecture 4